All right, friends, welcome to the show. After uh, 30 years or 33 years of hearing that rooster crow, it still makes me laugh a little bit. Um, I have in front of me, uh, the show is Stand to Reason, by the way, and this is Greg Kokel, your host. I have in front of me uh, a book titled The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, and subtitled Why New Atheism Grew Old, that's a good thing in my view, and Secular Thinkers are considering Christianity again. The author is one of my favorite guys to interview or be interviewed by, and we've swapped the uh, both sides of the microphone on a number of occasions, and he sounds really smart because of his British accent, but he also is really smart. <laughs> that helps. His name is Justin Brierley, former, formerly the, very, uh, the, the host of the very popular Unbelievable Podcast and Justin, what a treat to have you back on board today. And what are you oh. doing these days uh, since well, the demise uh, it, of Unbelievable or whatever happened? To well, it? tell us about that. Well, Unbelievable has has not gone away; it, it still exists. Uh, but I've I've moved on to to new things. Um, and yeah, it's been so long, Greg. I, I, there's a lot to catch you up on, to be honest, since we last spoke. But right, um, yeah, I I I guess I guess I was on the show. You know, I I started the show and hosted it for over 17 years. So it was a wow. a long running show with me at the helm. And um, obviously, we had some fantastic debates over the years, so many big hitters in the world of Christian apologetics Mm -hmm. and atheism and, you know, lots of theological debates over the Mm -hmm. years. Grew a really big audience um, on both sides of the pond, uh, you know, the US and and in the UK and and all over the world, really. So an absolute privilege to host so many conversations. Um, The time came where I I was just feeling led to to move on to to start some new Mm -hmm. things. And and so it was a very bittersweet goodbye to a show that I I loved hosting for so many years. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was time. I just felt God. God was calling me to to do some new things, uh, start some new projects. Um, the new book was was just coming out, and uh-huh. there's there's been a lot of activity around that. So uh, so yeah, it's it's a, it's been a blessing. But uh, yeah, it was it was a new start for me. Well, uh, there were a couple of times when you were um, low on high quality talent, so you even had me come in and do a couple of shows with you. Some in the UK and one here, and we, as I recall, we we're sitting in the same booth here, and uh, I. I hosted one show where I interviewed you, and then we switched places, and you recorded one of your shows here. That was a lot of fun. But I think That's that right. was probably five yeah, years ago or something great. like that, so it's been a while uh, since well, we got together. And yeah. your previous book was something to the effect of why you're still a Christian after listening to all the – I had it written down somewhere. I can't find us. Tell us the title of that. Yeah, it was it was called um, Unbelievable, named after the show, and the subtitle was Why After 10 Years of Talking with Atheists, I'm Still a Christian. Mm-hmm. So that was very much my, my – case for faith after at that point the 10-year mark of the show hosting these conversations and and kind of putting my worldview together and, and giving a, a sense of why why mm-hmm. it makes sense for, mm-hmm. from my perspective um now obviously it's been more like 17 years since i was i've been hosting those conversations mm-hmm. so um i'm still a christian is the good news and <laughs> and really the new book is is kind of the the kind of the look of the land the way that the culture has shifted really even since i wrote that first book, sure and the way the conversations really on faith have, have been shifting as well yeah i i'm kind of curious before we get into the book though 17 years of uh back and forth with some incredible talent from both sides and um did you ever have a time when you uh man i was trying to dodge that sneeze the whole time <laughs> I hit the button just at the last minute. Sorry. (laughs) 
Oh, my goodness. Sorry. Okay, there we go. I was trying to get the question out so you could be talking when I hit my kill button. Anyway, any times where you, you I mean, you obviously you had some of the most incredible, um, thoughtful atheists on your show, along with many from the other side, where you heard things that shook you, at least for a while, before you straightened things out? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there were there were plenty of kind of times when I was I was learning as I went along, you know, um, so so often with the show, I, I remember, for instance, the first time he encountered Bart Ehrman's work, um, you know, that that shook me up when I read misquoting Jesus. And, you know, he was casting a lot of doubt on the historicity and the reliability of the transmission of the New Testament documents right. and so on. Yeah. Um, but in a way, I, I learned with the, the, the listeners and the viewers as we went along. So when I brought him on with Peter J. Williams, a well-known sort of scholar from PJ. Cambridge, um, right. you know, yeah, absolutely. He he did a great job of kind of putting the other case, and mm-hmm. and as as that proverb says, you know, one one side seems to seems to have the right case until someone else comes along and puts the other, right. and and that's really what the show's been all about, putting both sides together in in that way. It was so yeah. I, very often, I I would be going on that journey myself. There was a, a big journey of learning and discovery as I hosted so many of these conversations between mm. some some really great thinkers on both mm. sides. Well. Uh, I, I, that's what brings us, I think, to the uh, subject of your <clears throat> your second book, which I guess you've been working on for a while, um, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. I'm really glad to see this, and I, and I have to say, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, I think this book is fantastic. Uh, it covers a broad number of areas where I think Christian theism really excels in explaining the world uh, compared to atheism. And it uh, chronicles a range of notable academics and intellectuals who are, have been kind of making a switch. And it's really well written, too, which is makes it nice. Uh, I have to say it was kind of frustrating for me. I got an ARC, so it's an advanced review copy. And, uh, you know, my schedule's been pretty busy here the last few weeks. And so I'm going through it here trying to get the highlights. And I'm thinking, all right, I want to sit down and just go first page to the last page and not stop, you know. But um, <laughs> I'm going to have to do that later. But I certainly got enough out of it to see the quality and prepare for our interview here. So, um, by the way, when is the book being released? Is or has it already been? Be- well, it's released? already been. It's already been released. So it actually released in September. Um, okay. And yeah, I've had some wonderful responses to it. So, so I'm so glad to hear you've been enjoying it too. Yeah. Okay, good. Tyndale House is the publisher. The surprising rebirth of belief in God. Okay, so uh, tell us. Um, <clears throat> I think we can start. We already talked a little bit about unbelievable, but I'd like you to talk more about it as a uh, as the 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 whole uh, strategy uh, format of unbelievable because that really uh, figures in uh, so much to the insights that you've gained over the years. And a lot of people that you cite um, in your book are, are are people who are on your program, and it looks like citations of them personally comes from probably the dialogue yeah. you had on your program. So. Um, uh, those kind of the trend now that you see brilliant secularists that are abandoning their atheism or maybe their agnosticism and uh, even some somewhat unwillingly kind of being dragged towards God and towards Christ. So tell us just a little bit about that format of unbelievable and uh, and how that figures into your basic thesis here in the book. Well, well, unbelievable for anyone who, who's ever listened to it, it has always been a conversational kind of dialogue type show. And and to that extent, it's it's very good as a way of 
kind of digging into some of those big issues between Christians and atheists and people of other worldviews. Um, I, I think I prefer that slightly more conversational edge to it rather than it being a debate, because you, you sometimes get to where people are a little bit more rather than them just sort of, you know, debating and, and sort of having to stand on a particular Yeah, I, I agree with you, but by the way, at um, that point. I, yeah, because yeah. because in debates, then you have Go people ahead. taking sides and it's contrary and whatever. It's the, the way you handle the conversations in those prod, podcasts were just magnificent. So um, I agree with you on that point. That, that's, that's really kind of you, Greg. I mean, what, what I noticed, though, as I was hosting these conversations was the, the show really got going kind of as as the new atheism was building ahead of steam. So the new atheism was this very dogmatic, anti-God atheist movement in the culture. And in many ways, that sort of meant that a lot of the shows that we had in those early years of Unbelievable reflected that quite dogmatic, bombastic style of the new atheist versus these well-known Christian right. thinkers I was bringing on. And and that was fun and good. And there was an, that was needed at the time because those were the big questions being raised in our culture. Um, you know, does God exist? Arguments and evidence for God. The, these big questions of whether religion mm-hmm. is bad for us and that sort of thing. Um, I did notice, though, especially in the latter years that I was hosting the show, that that actually the conversations were changing in tone. I was getting fewer and fewer sort of new atheists coming on and more people who were not necessarily religious, but distinguished themselves from the new atheists. They said, huh. well, I'm not really a Richard Dawkins type of atheist. Right. And and I just noticed that it was it was kind of starting to go out of vogue. Um Meanwhile, I'd seen sort of from the sidelines a lot of issues within the new atheist movement itself. There, there was a lot of infighting, a lot of controversies. Mm-hmm. Um, to some extent, the movement itself began to splinter and fracture in various ways. Mm. And so I was aware that the movement itself was sort of having internal issues, um, that it was kind of losing some of its public clout. The, its influence seemed to be waning. I think ultimately... You could even say that some people started to see it as quasi-religious in itself. You know, mm. often the, the 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 four horsemen, the so-called four horsemen right. of the new atheism, were almost like the high priests of of a quasi-religion because they they had a very a creed, if you like. You know, um, scientific materialism was was, if you like, their orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And if any of their contemporaries, their peers, dared to question it, people like Thomas Nagel and and others. They were rounded on, you know, as heretics, really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it was interesting to see the way it, it took on this, you know, quasi-religious nature. And I think that in itself, the dogmatism, the fundamentalism almost of the new atheism actually turned a certain number of people away from it in the end. And it, and in the end, I think it, it failed to really answer a lot of the fundamental questions. Mm-hmm. So, so the conversation started to change where I was starting to feature less of these sort of very dogmatic new atheists in the skeptics chair but often more people who were actually somewhat open to the claims of christianity or at least valued uh, had a sense of the value that christianity had brought to the mm-hmm. west even if they weren't necessarily christians themselves and 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 i just started to see the audience start to change as well in that way that the, not so many people were turning up for these big new atheist characters they were starting to turn up for for some of the people I mentioned in the book. Mm-hmm. So so th- so it was an interesting sort of evolution if you like of the conversations over time away from that that more new atheist rhetoric mm-hmm. to to something fresh. I I think that a lot of people were seeing uh and you do mention this in the book and and even people that are atheists like Michael Roos for example who were just <laughs> Um, got really fed up with the shallowness of the approach of the new atheist, not just the bombast, but what turned out to be uh, lots of straw men, misrepresentations of Christianity. And and um, and I think mm. Michael Roos, who's an atheistic uh, evolutionary philosopher from Florida, 
I, I get it mixed up. Florida State, I think, uh, not University of Florida. But anyway, he, mm. he just said, you know, he, he, can you guys at least try to understand the other side's view? I mean, it's kind of embarrassing for us. And I, I think what ended up happening, and, and again, you talk about this in some degree in your book. I'm going to ask about a, a particular um section that you uh, cited or you highlighted because of the interesting um, subtitle uh, or section heading. Uh, it's just like they were saying, wait a minute, these guys are not only kind of not so nice, but th- they seem kind of silly in some of the things they're saying when you actually sit down and try to think them through. And so that mm-hmm. section that you have – and here I'm, I'm, you've got a fourfold kind of treatment of this progression here in the first – uh, section deals with the the um, the decline of new atheism and atheistic secularism here, and you have a section called "Thank God for Richard Dawkins," and uh, tell us a little bit uh, about what that's uh, referring to. Yeah, well, I think I think you're absolutely right, Greg. That that a lot of people did come to see that the new atheists didn't have an awful lot in terms of actual arguments. They were strong on rhetoric. There was a lot of sloganeering. Um, there were a lot of memes, you know, that that were flooding the internet, but there wasn't actually really anything much in the way of, of really strong arguments against mm-hmm. God. In fact, when some of their best known characters did go up against some, you know, proper Christian thinkers like William Lane Craig, they usually didn't fare very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what I talk about in the book is the fact that actually more more frequently, sometimes sadly, they ran away from those kinds of debates. Richard Dawkins rather famously sort of right. refused to debate William Lane Craig at a serious level. Yeah. Um, they but, did, they but did the have an encounter once. For Richard Dawkins. I'm sorry, they, they yeah. did have an encounter. Yes, they went face to face once in South America or somewhere, I think. And then I don't think Professor Dawkins was even it, it, willing it, to shake Bill's hand, you know, well, something like that. Yeah. That that was probably the one occasion they did sort of meet. Though it, it was a bit of an odd format. There was a it was a sort of three versus three format. So it it wasn't really. Oh, they did have um, a discussion. engaging oh. properly with. Yeah, okay. yeah. So it was it would, but it, it it didn't really involve a, a proper sort of you know discussion between right Dawkins interaction. Right. Craig. I mean, I was involved at, at at a later stage with trying to get Dawkins and Craig together in in Oxford for a, a debate, and this was in 2011. So we're going back a while, but. But um, at the time, uh, I was helping to organise a tour that Bill Craig was doing here in the UK, uh-huh. and he was doing some lectures, some debates, and we wanted the the showpiece to be a debate in Oxford with Richard Dawkins, and we issued an invitation and and so on. But of course, as as we kind of expected, Dawkins refused and mm-hmm. gave all kinds of excuses for for not doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the end, we we were rather cheeky because you may remember there was this atheist bus campaign in the UK, right, right. where buses were going around London with the slogan, "There's probably." no god now stop worrying and <laughs> right, life. Yeah. so we sort of had our own cheeky oxford bus campaign which said there's probably no dawkins yes right. come along <laughs> to the sheldonian <laughs> theater in oxford and, and find out so it was it was it was a fun and rather silly thing but it was it, it for me it was an evidence that actually as i say the, the new atheism was was hot on rhetoric and not so much on argument mm-hmm. um but why do i thank god for richard dawkins i think it's because actually um, we can credit Richard Dawkins and the New Atheism for making the church kind of really pick up its theology and apologetics books again. I think f- to a large extent, you know, throughout 
the course of the latter part of the 20th century, the church had had become quite steeped in emotionalism and kind mm-hmm. of more sentimental forms of religiosity. Ah, good point. And and appealing to people's, right. you know, that 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 sort of psychological sure. and emotional part of people, and and had to some extent forgotten its its rich intellectual tradition of Christian apologetics and reason. And I think the new atheists, frankly, helped. Christian, a lot of Christians to rediscover that by mm-hmm. asking some of those tough questions. Mm-hmm. It forced them to go back to 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 you know the, the treasures of you know C.S. Lewis and and other great theologians, and and so I was happy to see the way in which uh, so many apologetics ministries I think actually flourished because mm-hmm. of new atheism. I mean, I don't think my unbelievable show would have had the impact it had was there not something like the new atheism for it to be oh, responding okay. to. Likewise, you saw. Your ministry, Bill Craig, many other apologetics ministries mm-hmm. that really I think grew because they had something meaty to 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 to, to respond to. So right. to, to that extent, I, I do thank God for Richard Dawkins. Mm-hmm. And I even have <laughs> friends today who are Christians, ironically, because they ran into the new atheism. It was the new atheism that actually opened up the God question for mm-hmm. them. And while it might have initially caused them to think, "Oh well, you know, God God can't exist. Look look at these clever people like Dawkins." I think actually they then, those who did eventually get around to looking at the other side of it realised, ah, there's more to this than I'd thought. Right. And, and so there's, there's a great, uh, another great book out actually at the moment called Coming to Faith Through Dawkins, which is just 10 people's stories of how it was actually the new atheism <laughs> and Dawkins that led them to faith. Yeah. So, so I, I, think, I think we can thank God for Richard Dawkins in, in that sense. There, um, well, um, Amy uh, just told me this morning she was looking, she ordered a book from someone who had actually contacted us about another title, but it was, I'm looking at Amy now. Uh, it's this one that you just mentioned. Oh, it's the one you just mentioned, uh, um, Justin. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and that book. it was, a, a you know, it was Dawkins was the, uh, you know, the factor, one of the um, decisive factors in them coming to Christ. So that's kind of interesting. Um, but there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of people and I, I, the, some that I was aware of, and some that I wasn't, as I read your book. But like Peter Bogosian, uh, the atheist late of Portland State University, who just finally got so fed up with all the leftist nonsense that uh, he just he just resigned, you know. And then, oddly, mm. made made a common cause with a, another Christian, um, a guy who leads Horatio Christie, who's. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. I'm trying to download his name real quickly here, but uh, but they were going around doing debates together on That's the same right. side, um, mm. defending mm. A not mm. their own worldviews per se, but against the leftist view that has been so corrupting. And, and that's something mm. um, that you talk about in your book, this kind of radical leftism that um, almost became for some of these vocal atheists in this country a bigger enemy for them than Christians. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I, I, this was one of the sort of big things that I was noticing. In, in, in Once the new atheism began to wane, one, one of the reasons it began to wane, frankly, was because there were a lot of fallouts within the movement mm-hmm. over the direction that atheism should go. So there was a certain faction that wanted to take it in the direction of so-called atheism plus. So that meant atheism, but also a commitment to things like lgbt diversity feminism uh, and so on mm. and and there there was a big kind of move against that at the same time and uh, um, from people like 
Bogosian and, and even Dawkins and others, where they felt this was sort of politically correct ideologies kind of taking over their movement. So the, the new atheism itself kind of got railroaded by the culture wars. They kind of came early in a way. Well, that's an interesting atheism. way of putting it. Yeah. As, as a lot of these controversies started, started to kind of split the movement itself, there was in fact, you know, and if you go to say, 2021 you know dawkins himself getting stripped of his humanist of the year award by the american humanist association Mm -hmm. is a very good example of the way in which the atheist secular movement really split down the center because why did he get stripped of that award that he'd been issued several years earlier because of his views on transgender Mm -hmm. so these kinds of issues began to really polarize the atheist movement itself and so you've got this interesting dynamic now where Bogosian, for instance, who had come on my show actually in 2014 to do a kind of classic God debate with Tim McGrew. And mm-hmm. they'd, they'd, and, and at that point in 2014, Bogosian was, you could say, card carrying new atheist, you know, because mm-hmm. he had written this book called A Manual for Creating right. Atheists. It was exactly what it says on the cover, uh, an attempt to persuade people out of their religious delusions, you know, and he literally thought of, you know, Christian faith as, as something like a mental delusion. Mm-hmm. So, so then fast forward just four or five years later, and I approached Bogosian um, to come come on the show again, this time for a live show that we were setting up in Portland, where, where he was still at the time um, a professor of philosophy. And and his email almost knocked me for six because he, he said, Justin, I'm a very different person to the one you interviewed four or five years ago. Uh-huh. Um, he said, the reality is I'm not here to debate Christians any longer. In fact, I think I've got more common cause with many Christians than I have with a lot of my secular peers these days. Mm -hmm. And at the time, he hadn't kind of gone full blown on his sort of his views on woke ideology and so on. But but he said, you'll find out what the the far more pernicious ideology I'm I'm kind of against uh, soon. And and what it turned out was that he and some of his peers were were um, involved in a kind of hoax, right. um, creating academic papers, bogus academic papers. They were submitting to peer-reviewed journals, which as long as it had the right politically correct sounding terminology and the, in the whole area of so-called grievance studies, um, were getting, you know, published, uh, uh, even though they were, these were clearly kind of par- parody sort of articles. So anyway, that all got rumbled. It came out, caused a big controversy. And ever since really, Bogosian, has always said, I'm far more concerned now about the quasi-religions of, of the, the woke left than I am about institutional religion. And, and it is an, it's just so interesting the way that, that that has completely changed the conversation mm-hmm. between a number of atheists and, and the Christians that they used to you know, go to battle with. So this raises another question. In your book, you say <clears throat> Peter Boghossian is not uh, no longer, or I should say the, the quote is, the firebrand atheist is gone. Now, I suspect that it's the firebrand part that has been been altered, not the atheist part so much, that there is a more pernicious uh, ideology out that he's willing to fight and make common cause with Christians. Do you have any sense that he's begun to um, question his own basic worldview? Well, I've listened to one or two interviews he's done recently. Now, I, I think he's, he's still an atheist, mm-hmm. um, but... I think what's changed is he's 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 realized that new atheism by trying to stamp religion out of people was really barking up the wrong tree. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's he's kind of come to accept that there's a that, that people are deeply religious in a sense and if they don't get religious about Christianity if you just take that story away from them mm-hmm. they'll replace it with something else and and what he's realized is that new atheism kind of swept the floor clean 
for all these other ideologies to come in the place of Christianity. And mm-hmm. he actually deeply regrets that. I think he's, he feels like we were better off with the kind of the Christian story than all these other stories, which are now, frankly, far more of a danger to Bogosian because they're right in his front yard, you know, mm-hmm. um, in, in the academy and everywhere else. So, so I think, although I wouldn't say Bogosian has, he's not had a Damas- Damascus Road conversion to Christianity. I think he's, he's got a lot more respect for Christianity because he's realized it, it sort of was a bullock almost mm-hmm. against a lot of other ideologies. Mm-hmm. And he's realized that atheism per se, you know, science per se, rationalism per se, doesn't actually do the job of giving people a story to live into. They need some kind of a story. And he's, I think he's kind of realized that the new atheism just didn't have a story that could replace the God story. So people started replacing it with all kinds of other stories. That's right. So well, so that's my take on, on Boghossian. That's because uh, atheism doesn't have a story except for in the beginning of the particles. And that's kind of where it begins and it ends. Uh, you, I have a note here, and I'm not sure yeah. I understand my own note, but uh, I think it relates to what you just said. Now, this is Sam Harris, who was one of the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse, so to speak. Mm. And this is a reference to the pragmatic, my note says, a pragmatic loss of Christianity's cultural dominance. Um, and that was, I, I, I'm not sure if Sam Harris is really complaining about that, but that's what I wrote down. I don't know if you had more to add, but that certainly mm. seems to be Bogosian's complaint that there was a cultural dominance that actually was something good for the culture that uh, that is now being replaced. The vacuum of Christianity is being replaced mm. by something more pernicious, as you mentioned, and that is the, yeah. the leftist ideology. Yeah. It's much more aggressive, much more evangelistic, much more totalitarian than any form of Christi- Christian religion in the West has been for for maybe a thousand years, for goodness sake. Yeah, yeah. I, and and I, I would say it's not just Boghossian and, and, and Harris who are beginning to recognize this. Um, I mean, I, I think of um, someone I've interviewed a couple of times on the Unbelievable Show, um, Douglas Murray. Now, he may not be as familiar a name to you, but he's he's a well-known sort of political commentator here in the UK. He's um, and and to some extent, he he became sort of good friends with the new atheists. You know, at the time that that was really in the ascendancy, he'd kind of lost whatever faith he had in his early twenties, and and he kind of counted himself among their ranks. But I think he very quickly came to realise that actually atheism per se couldn't give you the sort of the rights and values right. that that we kind of take for granted in the west mm-hmm. that, that it, he he came to realize just how dependent his his values and ideals were on the christian story actually mm-hmm. and and by the time i i had a conversation you know between him and nt Wright a few years ago he was calling himself a christian atheist basically and and he was recognizing that even though he didn't believe the christian story he he still kind of lived very much as though it were true because mm-hmm. he, because of the values and you, those values he believed in of equality, dignity, mm-hmm. human rights, freedom. They didn't come from um, atheism, you know, uh, and they were quite fragile. You know, they could go away. And he he has been very very concerned by the the leftward sort of progressive turn in in culture to all these new ideologies mm-hmm. which which he thinks are are far worse for mm-hmm. us than than Christianity ever was and 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 to, to the extent that he he's one of the the people where i i honestly see someone who would really like it to be true he's mm-hmm. kind of looking almost for a reason to believe huh. um even, he hasn't got there yet, but but mm-hmm. one wonders whether he might just cross the line at some point because he's he can almost see that it 
he wishes that yeah, something right, like right. the Christian story were true because he knows that the atheist story can't 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 do the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it reminds me of, uh, in a certain sense, the inverse of Nagel because Nagel says, "I don't want it to be true. I don't want there to be a God." But he is forced to acknowledging features of reality that don't fit in with the materialist view. His book was uh, the. Um, mm, 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 oh no! See now, I'm trying to download it. Mind and Cosmos. Ma, there, thank you. Mind and Cosmos. Only four words, but I couldn't get them. You got them faster than I did because you're in your forties. Uh, good for you. Um, yeah, Mind and Cosmos. <laughs> And, and he does make the quote. Of course, you cite him in your book, and you talk about him a bit. This other, <clears throat> excuse me, this um, Murray's observation seems to me to to match well with uh, the late Francis Schaeffer's observation that, and I've really traded on so much, um, Justin, in my my thinking about the world, in my conversations with others, that the fact is that human beings have to live in the world that God actually made. And they are actually made in the image of God. And so even when their ideologies um, reflect a a rejection of Christian theism, their common sense intuitions about the nature of the world um, are consistent with Christian theism and are satisfying. And mm. it's like they they want mm. um, they, they they it's it's interesting. For example, you know, people talk about Mother Nature. Well, they they note how does they personify what they see because it appears like somebody's messing with things, but they don't want to bow the knee to Father. They want to just give homage to Mother because she's not making any demands on them. So there's that mm. curious thing um, that's mm. going on now. <clears throat> and I also wonder. And uh, maybe you have something to say about this. Why Why the delay? Uh, these people are really smart. They've been thinking about these things for, for their whole lives. They have degrees in these things. And, um, and they are – some of them, like you've mentioned here, are, it, it, are just beginning to see that the things that they value have no grounding in their worldview. But they have a grounding – in the Christian worldview, I was just talking this weekend about the problem of evil and how the problem excuse me, the problem of evil makes sense in Christianity. At least it makes sense in our worldview. It belongs in our worldview. Uh, it's part of our story, and our story's not over yet. The atheist can't even make sense of the problem of, of objective evil, which is people people mm. have complained about. I just have always wondered why why don't they see that? Why don't they see that all of the things they're they're advancing and they're they're expressing as values in conversation and you know the great paragraph from God delusion how Dawkins is railing against the God of the Bible you know it's a very well written paragraph you could put it to music you know I think it's great um, <laughs> but it doesn't it's not at home in a world in which there's no good no evil nothing but blind pitiless indifference which is another one of Dawkins's. Uh, citation. So, w- w- do you have any sense of why did it take yeah. some of these people so long to to figure this out? I, 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 th- I think it, th- there's a number of reasons. Um, I think sometimes people sometimes don't don't want to see what what is often right in okay. front of them because <laughs> it does make a claim on your life. You know, there, there's there's an implication. It's not just assenting intellectually to something. If you say God exists, and especially if you say Jesus Christ. Um, you know, was God in the flesh. There's there's going to be all kinds of implications for that. So sure. I can understand why some people want to kind of hold that off at arm's length as long as possible. I mean, the, the other aspect of it, though, is I, I think often that these the fact that so many people in the West take the idea of human rights, for example, 
absolutely for granted. They, mm-hmm. they have just been brought up assuming this is completely natural. This is just the way any civilized society functions and mm-hmm. things. Uh, as one of my friends who's written a book on this subject, Glenn Scrivener calls it, he calls his book, The Air We Breathe. It is like the air we breathe. We don't right. notice it because we're so steeped in it. Um, the way that uh, another friend of mine, Tom Holland, puts it, who's a, a secular historian, but wrote this fantastic book called Dominion, which really looked at the way the Christian revolution has completely shaped the moral mm-hmm. instincts of the West. He, he says, we're like fi- um, goldfish in a, in a bowl. We, we don't even think about the water we're swimming in, but the mm-hmm. waters we're swimming in are, in fact, Christian waters. But, and sometimes, And I think the reason why just now, just at this moment, some of these intellectuals are starting to wake up to the fact that actually it's Christian waters we've been swimming in this whole time Mm -hmm. is because suddenly the foundations of their own moral structure are being challenged. I think they're they're starting to realise, oh, it turns out that not everyone has the same idea as me about the nature of reality, about physical biology, about, you know, why some things are right and why some things are wrong. And and I think that has led some of them to start to realise this 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 kind of Western the, the the Western values that we hold so dear are not necessarily just the product of common sense and you know mm-hmm. reason and science and and so I'll give you the example here of, of Tom Holland the, the historian I mentioned who's a very popular podcaster here in the UK has written this best-selling book but. Um, I've had him on the show several times now for conversations. And he essentially grew up with a very secular mindset, went to university, uh, studied history at Oxford University, went on to um, start writing very popular historical works um, on the Greeks and the Romans. Mm -hmm. But what he said to me was, he said, the more that I got into the mindset of the Greeks and the Romans, I realised how very alien their world was to my own. This was a world where slavery was just an absolutely accepted part of the economy, where some people could be the sexual property of others, where the lives of women and children were cheap, um, where, you know, a, a Roman emperor would parade through the streets of Rome boasting of killing and enslaving a million Gauls. He said, this this world was so alien to me. I suddenly realised, well, why do I believe in freedom, equality, dignity? Uh, and, and he realised it's not because of the Greeks and the Romans it's not because of science and reason. It's because of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. The movement he began is what made gave me my moral instincts today. And he ended up saying, I realised that in almost every way, I am in fact a Christian, yeah. Justin. Mm-hmm. And, and so when someone like mm-hmm. Tom Holland goes on that intellectual journey, suddenly I think it starts to niggle away. And, and he himself has now openly kind of critiquing his secular peers mm-hmm. and saying, look, just face up to it. Your belief in human rights is a theological belief. It doesn't. It doesn't come from science or reason or you know ancient Greece. It comes from Christian assumptions. <laughs> That's right about us being made in the image of God. And and so so it's so interesting to hear them say that. Now in Tom Holland's case. I think he has been edging towards Christian faith. Um, he's kind of, that's very much hit him at a personal level. Mm-hmm. I think others are still sort of somehow managing to hold it out as a sort of an abstract thing, that it's a kind of almost a useful fiction, mm-hmm. if you like, that's, that's, that's helpful, but I don't have to accept that it actually has any supernatural implications. Mm-hmm. So so I think it does depend on the individual as to, as to what they're willing to accept in the end when, yeah. when it comes to these ideas. You know, I have a lot of thoughts here as you're talking, Justin, and even the concept of useful fiction. Well, in these kinds of things, they're not useful if they're fictions. You know, they're just, they are just fictions. 
you know, that maybe you subjectively happen to like. I, I don't know, because the the if we have a deep belief in human rights and our deep belief entails that these aren't really real, we're just playing at a game, this undermines the force of human rights, of course. And this gets to a point um, – and you you made this. I want to draw attention to it because I talk about it a lot, and I want people to see the distinction. Um, that I, the way you put it is that they're realizing that these kinds of things do not come from reason, and that's the source. Reason may be a way we know these things, just like a stop sign is the way we know that we ought to stop. But that's not what gives the stop sign its authority. It's a governing authority that the stop sign comes from. Mm-hmm. And and this is, this is uh, the distinction that's really important. People say, well, where, where do you get morality? And they say, oh, it's just common sense. Well, wait a minute. That wasn't the question. The question isn't how do you know it? The question is, where did it come from? And that's the key thing that gives morality its its force. But I don't know if you've been following Bill Maher lately because he factors into this discussion. Mm. You know, Bill Maher, the, uh, the, the kind of the comedian, yeah. he's a liberal, not a leftist. He's been doing screeds recently, yeah. uh, very upset with the left uh, and very funny the way he does it. And he's pretty much – untouchable. You know, a lot of people don't like him. I heard the first one uh, in June during the gay pride thing all all over the country. And he said, anyway, the one I listened to yesterday, he was talking about Western civilization and all the woke crowd that's talking about how oppressive Western civilization has been. And then he says, listen, everything that you value came from Western civilization. Now, just a point of information, he doesn't identify Christianity as the source. He identifies Western civilization, but of course, Western civilization sits upon the foundation of Christian values, uh, just as you're pointing out here. And uh, he couldn't go that far, you know. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it, he, he is among this group. And I wonder if he's going to come to a point where he's going to be thinking, as these others have, a little bit more about the actual substantive foundations of these liberal yeah. values that come out of Western civilization. I, 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 I think he is. And this is the fascinating thing, Greg, is that I'm seeing more and more of these thinkers, some of whom were once very ardent atheists, starting to realize that they they really that, that you need something like the judeo-christian principles from the christian story to continue the kind of civilization that that you know we we think is worth preserving um now it's interesting as you say i've watched bill maher's sort of journey there and and he's very much gone on that same kind of bogosian style journey of of kind of realizing that simply railing against religion as as he did you know in his sort of new atheist phase he had that documentary religious where he was taking taking the mickey out of religion and so on but but i think he's he's again one of these people who've realized there's something far more pernicious that i should be turning my attention to Mm -hmm. what what's interesting is i'm also coming across characters who are going further than bill maher and peter bogosian who who are, who are coming to sort of almost you know embrace theism slash Christianity in the process? So, um, just this past week uh, here in the UK, there was a big conference, the ARC conference. It stands for the Alliance of Responsible Citizens, and mm-hmm. it's the brainchild of um, Jordan Peterson, who's someone I, I feature in the book. He was my next question, and, actually, and he's one of these sort of well, uh, we'll we'll come to him, but he he and many others of his ilk. Um, both Christians and non-Christians were put on this conference, which was basically about 
asking how how do we respond to the progressive left and the capture of culture in that way and um, one of the most fascinating, you know, panelists that I watched on that was Ayn Hurst Ali. Um, Ayn Hurst Ali is a- an ex-Muslim um, Somali woman oh, yeah, yeah, who yeah. became very notable um, in the sort of mid 2000s um, for rejecting Islam, speaking out very strongly against Islam. And she very much became sort of one of the new atheist crowd. She was frequently invoked and speaking at their events and that kind of thing. And she she kind of became quite a, quite an ardent atheist. She has changed her tune remarkably because when she spoke on this panel, she talked about the fact she no longer considers herself an atheist. And she says what she's realised is that you need something like the Judeo-Christian story and Mm -hmm. the the values that that, that we've inherited. That's the only kind of bulwark that really works against Islam, she's Mm -hmm. saying. Mm -hmm. And, And so it's fascinating when you see someone like that who's actually now kind of decided to shun the atheist label and seems to be edging towards even a a kind of a Christian identity. Um, Because I've seen that happening more and more with some of these figures who I never imagined would go in that direction, Mm -hmm. who interestingly seem to be realising there's there's much more value than I ever realised in what Christianity has done for us. And people, frankly, just giving it a second look because of that. You know, it, it's so interesting. I wasn't aware of this regarding her. I knew she was quite a, uh, a public figure, obviously, in the period that you mentioned. But um, notice what she's saying. She's saying it's not just theism because she came from a theistic religion, Islam. It's not – theism is not adequate to ground everything. In principle, it's the kind of thing that's necessary, but not any old theism is going to do it because we've seen the civil rights, uh, human rights excesses, uh, violations that seem to be inherent to fundamental Islam. When I say fundamental, I don't mean in a pejorative sense. I mean this is – you know they follow the leader. They read the book. They take the doctrine seriously as delivered historically. Uh, they're not liberals, so to speak, in their religious uh, convictions about Islam. But um, clearly, theism is not adequate. You need a particular kind of theism that is accurate, ac- that is adequate to ground the kind of liberal values, and here I mean liberal also in the best sense of the term, that have been the uh, the hallmark of uh, liberty and freedom in the West. So we, we, you mentioned uh, Jordan Peterson, and actually you talk about him quite a bit in the book throughout, and uh, he, he's a hard personality to dodge in this kind of discussion because I, I take him as almost archetypal of the, of the kind of dynamic that you describe in your book. By the way, I'm talking with Justin Brierley, author of The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, subtitled Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers are considering Christianity again. And there's probably probably no one if, – if, if, if someone – if people who are watching in general know anyone who's in the process, they know about Jordan Peterson, the um, psychologist uh, from the University of Toronto that became well-known because he refused to go along with the gender ideology and, uh, and that kind of launched him. And then he wrote a book on 12 principles. Uh, I can't remember the title, but it was a really big book. I ordered it. That was too big for me to read. I wanted the, you know, the Cliff Notes version of it. I wanted to get his principles and move on. But in any event, lots and lots of people read it, and it reflects kind of common sense principles for common sense. Let me back up. Common sense pr- principles for being an adult. 
in, mm, yeah. in, a, in a juvenile society or a culture. So uh, yeah. tell us, you, you've had a number of conversations with him, uh, I know on your program, unbelievable, and uh, I don't know, maybe in private as well, and certainly you've watched him move, like in the ARC uh, convention. Tell us a little bit about that whole dynamic with Peterson, insofar as it reflects this dynamic you're discussing in your book. Yeah. Well, well, Peterson is is uh, the 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 probably the preeminent example of of these secular thinkers considering Christianity again, um, because he really stole a march on the new atheists um, to to some extent when he rose to to prominence in 2017, 2018. It was on the back of him kind of literally packing out theatres doing sort of three-hour lectures on the book of Genesis. Now, Mm -hmm. you know, many church pastors would wish that they could pack out theatres with with sermons on the book of Genesis. But he was a secular psychologist kind of pointing lots of these people turning up, young men, by the way, pointing people back towards scripture as a source of meaning, tradition um, and virtue. And, And what I think Peterson has identified was that, A, the new atheism was far too shallow in terms of the, the 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 kind of answers it was giving to people searching for meaning and purpose and identity. And what he identified was that there there is a story, the Christian story, that has done that for generations upon generations, and that we shouldn't just throw it out, you know, assuming that it doesn't have anything to say to us. Mm-hmm. And and he's also identified that there is a meaning crisis in our culture. Um, in fact, a lot of psychologists are talking about this. People like John Jonathan Haidt and um, uh, John Viveki and others. That, that essentially because people have kind of become unmoored from a story that makes sense of their life, because the secular material story, as you said earlier, it's a non-story. It doesn't actually tell you what you're worth, what you're here for, right, anything like right. that. Because people are now trying to invent stories for themselves from scratch, whether it be through sexual gender identities that become kind of quasi-religious mm-hmm. sort of sacred status for people or, or or even you know political mythologies on the right there's there's a kind of there's a sense in which people are looking for stories to make sense of their life but they're they're left unmoored and and it's it's what's producing this meaning crisis which is resulting in a sort of a a, a pandemic of uh, anxiety depression the mental health crisis and everything else and so jordan peterson as you say was not doing anything that sort of radical he was really sort of just giving good advice you know mm-hmm. common sense type of instructions about cleaning your room and being more responsible <laughs> making telling your the truth <laughs> and yet this kind of struck yeah struck the ears of these his his young listeners as as kind of revolutionary and and he you know was being bombarded by people who were saying you've changed my life I, you know but what was interesting to me was that he was turning sending people back to the the stories of scripture mm-hmm. and and now Peterson's interesting because he takes a very psychological approach to right. those stories. He's 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 a, basically a Jungian in right. terms of his his psychological beliefs, and he tends to, his prime interpreter of scripture, if you like, is is Jung rather than the Holy Spirit. So he tends to take these stories and invest them with a lot of symbolism and psychology. Um, and at one level, there's there's nothing that wrong with that because I think. Scripture does have enormous psychological depth and wisdom. And I think, you, if you like, Peterson is kind of pointing people towards that. What what I'm not so sure about is is whether he really takes scripture on its own terms as also being historically reliable and and there really being a God who is you know has a has a claim on your life. Mm-hmm. Um, he often talks about God being the, the the highest thing in your hierarchy of values. That's the sort of the Jungian sort of psychology coming out. But I want to say yes, that could be true, but 
what if there's also a God who, you know, created you and came in the person of Jesus Christ and everything else? And I think, again, Peterson is kind of on that journey somewhere. I think he is starting to grapple with, certainly with the person of Jesus. Right. And and he recognises that you need something like God to be able to live a fulfilled, meaningful life. And he's passing on that wisdom to many people so that even if he's kind of a bit hard to nail down where he is on the spectrum, I know lots of people for whom he's opened the door to, mm-hmm. to Orthodox Christianity, actually. Mm-hmm. People who've walked through that door. Mm-hmm. People who were very surprised to find themselves walking through that door because they had assumed maybe only 10 or 15 years ago that Dawkins and his crowd had all the answers. Mm-hmm. So I, I just find this a fascinating kind of evolution of what's happening at a cultural level as people are just being primed to potentially hear that Christian story afresh again. Well, this whole point you're making about the crisis of meaning, which you talk quite a bit about in the book, is uh, meaning is teleological. In other words, that it, it's not – the problem here is that people have been making up their own meaning in the absence of some kind of transcendent meaning. But meaning – purpose is teleological. In other words, it's going somewhere. It's pointing to some end. And uh, that end, you, you, you can't – if you just manufacture your, your Jungian god as part of your system, that's not going to give you the kind of meaning that is necessary to ground human existence. It's just going to give you another subjective story like the transgender crowd is using uh, to replace the story uh, in their new religion. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to watch how this plays out for Peterson because in your book, you, you mentioned that he, he refuses to be pinned down. And people ask me, do you think Jordan Peterson's a Christian? I said, no. I mean, if a guy refuses to be pinned down, uh, that's not a Christian. A Christian is not going to refuse to be pinned down. They're going to weigh, they're going to shout it from the rooftops, right? Which is okay. He's in a process. Now, he's very taken mm. I, I, mm. with Lewis's journey, C.S. Lewis's journey, which seems like on a mm. similar track to his, which took a while. But he's, mm. I know that when he, I've seen uh, clips where he's talking about Jesus, and he, he he gets very emotional about it, and this concept of Lewis's yeah. um, that actually came from Tolkien, I think, or uh, one of uh, the other inklings that what you're talking about with Jesus is the true myth. It's not just a kind of a Jungian archetype, but something that actually took place. And and when he starts grappling with that, and it sounds persuasive, that brings him hardcore into history and out of the stratus Jungian stratosphere, yeah. so to speak. You think? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I, I there's one particular conversation he had with someone who's quite quite often a sort of theological dialogue partner of his, Jonathan Pajot, who's a an Eastern Orthodox thinker. Um where and this was I think probably influenced by the fact that Peterson had only recently come out of quite a sort of life or death situation. He he had a very terrible illness for, for some time where, where right. he was really, you know, on the edge of, of life or death. Um, but and not long after he was sort of coming out of that in recovery, he had this conversation where he got very emotional, as he often does. Um, and I think that's part of the, the attraction, actually, for people that he really does wear his sort of his soul on his sleeve in that way. Mm. Um, he he talked about how confounded he was by the person of Jesus and how he found in the person of Jesus the 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 literal if you like historical world of of material facts and history mm-hmm. met the psychological world of myth and meaning that that obviously peterson is so invested in and and somehow in jesus both those worlds collide 
is the way he put it. And he said, I, 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 I believe yet I hardly understand my belief, I think was, was the way he put it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he's definitely on, as you say, a very C.S. Lewis-like journey. It was exactly that kind of same kind of path that Lewis took with, you know, in that famous walk he had with Tolkien around the grounds of Magdalen College, where mm-hmm. finally the pieces fell in, into place, where he realised that he didn't have to sacrifice the world of meaning and imagination that he was so invested in mm-hmm. uh, and and the mythologies of the dying and rising gods, which he thought Christianity was just another instantiation mm-hmm. of. Because actually, what if the myth became fact mm-hmm. in the person of Jesus? What if th- that that one in that one person... Mm-hmm all of that mythology, imagination and meaning suddenly took physical, historical, real, objective form. And and for, for I think, you know, I very much get the sense that Peter's going on a similar kind of journey to, mm-hmm. to Lewis in that respect. Well, at this point, I'm, I'm quite frustrated because um, I've got about two hours more with questions and conversation <laughs> for you and we're really I running out of time. I can come back on and we, yeah. we'll do a part two. Well, I mentioned that there are four stages that you identify in your book, if I read it properly, the decline of atheistic secularism and a, a new foundation. Actually, we didn't even get into this. A new foundation, except for you made a reference to Tom Holland, but uh, being laid by, uh, especially with historical works, uh, people like uh, Tom Holland and Rodney Stark, um, and then a rediscovery of the Bible. You spent a lot of time talking about that, which is, to some, I think our listeners are going to think, that's just amazing. You mean these radical, like, atheist types or secularists are kind of rediscovering the Bible and beginning to take it seriously? And I I think some of that has to do with um, the way um, the biblical story um, fits the world and also, as we've been talking about now, provides grounding for the things that they intuitively understand are deeply valuable and meaningful um, in, to human existence. Uh, and then this other element, um, discoveries in science, and you spend a lot of time talking about that too, that uh, are, are have the force of driving these people to reality. You know, what reality is telling us mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that there is a design and a purpose. Um, I was going to get into, uh, ask you a little bit about the, um, the and we had like two and a half minutes or three minutes to go here, but um, about determinism and uh, uh, Daniel Dennett and all the, the craziness there, which you cover so well. I mean, Daniel Dennett holds that... Uh, Consciousness is an illusion, and uh, you talk about the hard problem of consciousness and, and what other people around Dennett are seeing uh, in mm-hmm. the foolishness of this point. So um, let us let me let me just jump right to the last part of the book here in the last two minutes or so, mm-hmm. uh, Justin. And um, y- you, you talk about um, one piece of advice you give to prepare – you give three pieces, but one that really struck me was what, to prepare for this new great new awakening for Christians to keep in mind that people are coming around that you never thought would come around is to keep Christianity weird. Keep Christianity <laughs> re- yes. weird. Do you remember that part? It's towards the end. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, what what I was noticing was as I was interviewing and speaking to a number of these um, secular folk who were just kind of considering Christianity again, the, the Jordan Petersons, the Tom Hollands, the Douglas Murrays, um, 
I, I realized that a lot of them, they didn't want a kind of watered down, kind of warmed over humanism version of Christianity. They didn't want a Christian, a church that was sort of looked so much like the culture. It was barely distinguishable yeah. from it. They, they, they frequently, what they told me was we, if it's, if I'm going to come on board, Justin, give me something that's different. That's kind of different to just the, the mm-hmm. secular material story of reality. Right. Um, and, and what the phrase that one of them used was, you know, keep Christianity weird and i and i think one of the problems was that that you know some of them were seeing some of the mainline churches simply adopting all the same kind of leftist ideologies right. and, and kind of those sorts of stories and and they they were completely put off by that others sort of saw certain types of mega churches kind of just adopting a very kind of materialistic um sort of popular pop culture kind of ways yeah. of, of doing church which they left them kind of cold you know I, I can get the Coldplay concert you know much better than the church can deliver it right, um, right. and they wanted the mystery the meaning the depth the you know the, the kind of the ancient aspect really of what mm-hmm. this was they wanted to be connected to something much deeper and richer so I think that's a, a lesson that we need to, to, to listen to I think the church needs to take that on board that sometimes people aren't looking for something so contemporary that it feels actually irrelevant to them. Um, they're looking for something rather different, and 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 th- and that's worth bearing in mind. Well, I, I'm so glad you kind of end on that note, and we did as well here. Uh, there's one citation where the gentleman says something like, "They wanted to the Christians compromising in this regard wanted to be more like me instead of asking me to be more like them." <laughs> and uh, and I think of the temptation a lot of times to try to sanitize God, even with some of the more demanding and and challenging things that people see in Scripture and uh, and and your your point of keeping uh let's see um ke- keeping things weird um is is really encouragement not to sanitize God Justin uh, gosh there's the music goodness gracious uh it's been so much fun talking with you here today <clears throat> and I, I yeah. hope it's not another you five too, years or so <laughs> until we connect again Justin Brierley <laughs> author of the surprising rebirth of belief in God it's a fantastic book it's masterfully and intelligently written and it deserves a slow reading which I will give it all right Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason give them heaven friends bye-bye now <laughs>